I fled him down the nights and the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Up vested hopes, I sped and shot precipitated down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. These are the opening words of what is considered by many to be one of the greatest English poems. The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson, written in 1890. It is a poem about the pursuit of the soul by God's love, God's love hunting after us. See, God is a lover. He is a seeker. He is a pursuer. And we often get it backwards. We mix it up like we do with so many things. We think that human beings are, are those who have this great desire for God and are pursuing after and hunting this elusive God who doesn't want to be found, but we want to somehow find him. It's the reverse. God seeks after humanity. He seeks. He saves. And today's passage is one that shows us this great truth. It's the story of Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth, it's a strange name to our ears. And undoubtedly, I will mess it up a few times as I attempt <laughs> to speak the syllables to you today. But though strange and hard to pronounce, it's a name that should ring in our hearts and our minds with a, a brightness and a sweetness because it does turn our attentions ultimately to Jesus. Well, in this series, we've been seeing how King David points us again and again to Jesus, the Messiah, the hero. David is a signpost that points to the true anointed one. And so let's get into it. Let's see how the story of Mephibosheth points us the way of Jesus. Now, Again, Mephibosheth, strange name, but there is shame in the name. There's shame in the name, quite literally, and I mean that literally and figuratively. So literally in the sense that the Hebrew word is a compound word, two words. The first one means to scatter or to break apart, and the second word, the, the, the Bosheth word, that means shame. So to, to scatter or to break apart, shame. Now that's odd, it seems a little bit ambiguous. What, is this, what does this mean? Is this a guy who scatters about shame? Is this somebody who brings shame? Or is this somebody who does away with, it, with shame? So the shame scatterer, does this mean shame bringer or shame breaker? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. What does the story tell us? Well, into the story we go. Let's see. So rewind with me now, some 3,000 years to the Iron Age, to a time of, of clashing kings and a time of warring kingdoms, to a time of bronze armor where the, the hottest and latest tech of the day are iron weapons. And let's head into the heart of Israel. Let's head into the city of Jerusalem, the place of power. And as we do, there's a king. And he sits on his throne. There's something different about this King. There's something unusual about this king. This king is King David. And as we've seen in our explorations up until now, uh, he has been through the wild places. Now he's in the plush palaces. 
We've been working our way through First and Second Samuel, and we've seen that David has been a shepherd boy. Yet in his radical trust to Yahweh, he took out a serpent, the giant Goliath. And so this giant-slaying shepherd boy was anointed to be the, the king of, of God's people prior to that battle. He's a hidden king, so to speak, and now he's going to be a king on the run because King Saul is out to kill David. See, King Saul, the current king, he's turned rotten. He's, he's kind of turned like milk, spoiled like rotten milk, and it brings sourness to the kingdom, and he's after King David, or after David, and he wants to kill him, but David refuses to strike at Saul. Well, eventually Saul falls. He dies in battle, and so does his son Jonathan, and Jonathan happens to be David's best friend. So Saul's kingdom has fallen. Now David sits on the throne, and that brings us to our text, the story of Mephibosheth. And you could say that the story of Mephibosheth works as a four-act play. There's four acts here for us to look at. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the four-act story of Mephibosheth and see how the true king seeks out enemies to lavish with loving kindness. The true king seeks out enemies to lavish with loving kindness. Here are the four acts. Act one is the tragic fall. Act two is the seeking king. Act three is the betrayal, and then act four is the loyal love. So the tragic fall, the seeking king, the betrayal, and the loyal love. So let's get in. Act one, the backstory for today's main text. As I finish reading the main text, verse 13 says, Now he, Mephibosheth, was lame or crippled in both of his feet. Why? How? What happened? Imagine you watch uh, Return of the Jedi, the first Star Wars movie you've ever seen. Return of the Jedi. Luke has no hand. He's got this robot hand. What is up with the hand? That seems really important. It is, right? If you don't know the backstory about the losing of the hand, then you don't know like the I am your father bit. You don't know all those things. The story doesn't have its full impact. So there's some backstory needed. Well, into our backstory we go. Mephibosheth, two shattered feet. What is this? Why is this? How is this? Act one, the tragic fall. Second Samuel chapter four, verse four. 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So many years before our text, when King Saul and Jonathan had died in battle, the news came to the royal house. The terrible news. The terrible news that would bring more terrible news because everybody knew what would happen when the king killers came into the palace. What would the king killers do when they came to the palace? Well, they would kill the royal family, right? That's what they do. That was, that was the basic operating principle of kingdom transfer. The king is dead, Right? Long live the new king who kills all the competition. That's how it works. So this terrible news and fearful situation comes when Mephibosheth is just five years old and panic ensues in the royal house. So Mephibosheth's nurse acts in haste along with the whole fearful household because they know the sword's coming for them and 
she picks up this young child, and I don't, I don't know what happens. None of us do. She trips or falls, but something of great severity happens. Maybe, maybe there was a balcony involved. Maybe there were stair steps involved. We don't know, but whatever the details are, it's a tragic thing, and the severely injured five-year-old never heals properly. Both of his feet permanently crippled, and he never walks for the rest of his life. He's physically disabled because of the violence in the world and the evil that was coursing through his own family tree. This is act one, the tragic fall on the royal child. Act two, the seeking king. Fast forward some 15 years to when David now rules in power over a united kingdom. Second Samuel chapter nine, verse one. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. What a statement. What a statement. This is the very opposite of what any other king would do. This is not something you hear in the Iron Age. This is not the, the basic best practices. It, is anyone still out there of Saul's house left that I should slaughter crush, kill, wipe out. That's what is expected. But instead, no, no, we get this word kindness, that, that I could be kind to. This is a fascinating word. This is, this is the word hesed. This is a word that can be translated. It's very difficult to translate because it's so rich and ro robust and has so many uh, shimmering facets. But it's a word that you can translate as loyal love or uh, unfailing faithful kindness. It's a word that Sally Lloyd-Jones translates so well in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Here's what, how she says it. She says, never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. That's what Hesed is. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever Love. Is there anybody left of my enemy's family that I can show never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love? What a sentence. Now also note that this loyal love is for whose sake? Jonathan's sake. Again, years before, Jonathan and, and David, they're, they're best friends. They know this is a, it's a tragic story. They know that there is, is violence and, and that there are odds to, to overcome because of what's going on in the kingdom. And so they, they make this promise to one another. They make a covenant. David promises he would look after Jonathan's family if anything would happen to Jonathan. Jonathan. And so we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 42. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord, he will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. So they make a covenant to bless each other and each other's descendants. Now that brings up a question. What in the world is actually a covenant? What is a covenant? Well, a covenant, you can say, is an agreement that is structured by personal loyalty and costly sacrifice. A covenant 
is an agreement that is structured by personal loyalty and costly sacrifice. When they cut a covenant, it was called cutting a covenant, they would cut animals in half and they would walk down the bloody aisle and say, if I do not live out of this personal loyalty to you and fulfill what I've promised, then may it be to me like it is to these animals. May my blood be spilt. It's a severe but also an incredible personal loyal commitment. And you can say this, where a contract is primarily transactional, right, and impersonal, think Verizon Wireless, okay? A covenant is relational and personal. Wedding vows. There's a big difference between signing a contract with Verizon Wireless and wedding vows. Unfortunately, our culture mixes them up, and sometimes we're more committed to Verizon than we are spouse. We misunderstand covenants and contracts. This is a covenant, a forever promise. So David and Jonathan make this covenant before the Lord. They seek each other's flourishing and they're going to care for each other's offspring. So now years later, years later, this king, David, he's seeking to honor this, this covenant to Jonathan to extend loyal love to the house of Saul, the one who tried to kill him. Anyone of Saul's house would be considered an enemy. Think about that. Anyone of Saul's house is considered an enemy. Anybody left of Saul's camp will, could be a rallying point for a rebellion against David. David is taking a risk by, by doing this. This is a costly act of love. On to verse 2. Verse 2 through 4. Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Second time, he says, that our author wants us to hear the word hesed ring in our heads. Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. So the servant says, yeah, there's someone left. His name is Jonathan, but... He, he's living out in Nowheresville. He's, he's in exile. He's living out with a friend in, in Lodabar. This word, uh, this name for this village, this place, Lodabar, that lo is a negative. It means no. And then Dabar means word or, or thing. So it, it means the, no, the place of no word, the place of no thing, the place of no communication. Some translate it as the place of no, no pasture. Like he's literally exiled in, in Nowheresville. Now David has a target for his loyal love. Verses five through eight. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Now, we've got to stop right there. Because the word goes out to an exiled and hiding Mephibosheth in Nowheresville, that the king is calling him to see him. Question, what emotions are rising in Mephibosheth when he hears the king is calling him? Oh no. Fear, I would imagine. And I don't, maybe anger, maybe resentment because of how his life has gone. And, but I imagine fear. I'm going to be executed. I'm being called to my death. Keep in mind, he, he most likely has no idea that David and Jonathan made a covenant. He was just five years old and everything was, was in chaos. All he knows is that his royal life was shattered along with his feet. And he is the last remaining threat. 
to David. Soon he thinks he'll have non-functioning feet and no head. Kind of problematic for him. But the good news awaits in this broken outcast. Look at verse 6. And David said, just imagine Mephibosheth there, just on the floor, shaking. Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore you to all the land, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for dead dogs such as I? Uh, doesn't this scene just do something to you? He thought death was coming, and he's granted life and blessing. David knows this guy's scared out of his wits. Fear not. Fear not. David isn't going to execute him. He's going to invite him into blessings. Now, notice what Mephibosheth says. He says, what is your servant that you should regard me? I'm just a dead dog. And again, just put yourself in Mephibosheth's place. He was once a royal son. He was the son of a prince. So the throne was possibly in his future. He lived in a palace. He had inheritance of untold riches. He had a royal identity. He had status. But then, the tragic fall and his good and loving father, a good dad, Jonathan, killed his grandfather, Saul, killed. He loses his home, his land, his wealth, his status, his identity. All he knows is just completely gone. He's taken as an exile on the run to Nowheresville, and his feet were violently shattered in a fall. He remains unable to walk or play with the other children the way he used to. This is Mephibosheth. Shattered life. What fears, what resentments, what self-pity rolled around in him. We get a feel for how he sees his lot in life. In his words, a dead dog. Now notice David's first word. What is David's first word to him? That's the second. First one. Mephibosheth. His personal name. What kindness. He sees Mephibosheth as a person of dignity and respect. He dignifies him. He doesn't just see him as this, this broken thing, but as an image bearer of God. Now David goes beyond fear not, all the way into rejoice. Look at verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. He's providing for Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth, your, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now he's saying, now he's going to be in my presence, the king's presence. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, so Mephibosheth has a whole lot of people serving him now. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that, my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Like one of the king's sons. Man, David gives to Mephibosheth all the royal lands and property 
that were King Saul's. And he invites him into relationship to eat at the table with him and adopts him as one of his own children. End of Act 2. Ends with this powerful sentence. Verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And reminder, he was lame in both his feet. So, so again, look. The king seeks out an enemy to lavish with loving kindness. Why? Because of a covenant made with his friend Jonathan. Mephibosheth does not do anything to earn or, or, or garner this, this favor. It's just lavished on him because of a love that predated him, that preexisted him. Where the world would have said, cut down. And crush your competition. Devour your rival. Eliminate your enemy. What does David say? I'm going to hunt someone down to lavish love on them because of a covenant. And we could stop there. Act two. We could. Should we? Okay, good. Because we're not. Uh, act, act three. We got the, the, that's mid-arc. The, the arc keeps going. Act three, the betrayal. Fast forward some years, fast forward some chapters. Time passes, fractures show up in David. Fractures show up in David's kingdom. There's civil war. David's own son, Absalom, is committing mutiny. He wants to take the throne. He wants to kill his own dad. And amidst the drama of it all, David leaves the city under threat. He flees from Absalom. And while he is leaving the city, again, the king on the run, we read this, 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel chapter 16. You guys are doing great, all the flipping back and forth, but there's a whole story here to, to develop, and when you see it, it's so good. 2 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 3. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, they're going east, they're going up the Mount of Olives. Going up the Mount of Olives, weeping up the Mount of Olives. Jesus Easter egg. Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100, of bunches, of, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruit are for the young men to eat, and the wine for those faint in the wilderness to drink. And then the king said, where's your master's son? In other words, David's on the run. Ziba comes and says, I'm with you. I'm with you. You're, you're my king. And here's a bunch of stuff to help us on our journey. And David goes, yeah, but where's Mephibosheth? Where's Mephibosheth? And then we get this in verses 3 and 4. Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. What just happened? Oh, crud. Like Mephibosheth, like this was going well. Where's Mephibosheth? Ah, sorry to tell you, but he's taking this as an opportunity to gain power. He's not with you. He has betrayed you even though you have been gracious to him. When David says, fine, then you can have all that I gave him, and off they ride into the east to live another day. End of Act 3, end of the betrayal. Now, our hearts should sink a little bit there. But the story's not over. One more act, right? Act 4, the loyal love. 
So after the Civil War, King David comes back. He sits on the throne. He's ruling from the throne. Mephibosheth meets David again. What's going to happen? Ooh, the tension, right? It's high. What's going to happen? 2 Samuel 19. 2 Samuel 19, uh, pick up at verse 24. I hear so many pages rustling today, and my heart is so happy. I hear swiping too. That's fine. It's good. 2 Samuel 19, verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, hadn't washed them, hadn't trimmed those long toenails, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. He looks a wreck. This is one who looks like they have been in mourning. What's going on? Okay, now it's a mystery story. Now we're into the intrigue. Verse 25. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? Did you, did you hear what just happened? Huge plot twist. According to Mephibosheth, whose fault was it? Who betrayed David? Ziba betrayed him, left him behind, threw him under the bus. Mephibosheth was dropped again in another way during another political upheaval fleeing from violence. Here in Act 4, what do we think? Who do you believe? Ziba or Mephibosheth? Who's suspicious? Should we do this? I don't know if we should do this. Who's suspicious of Ziba? Okay, who's suspicious of Mephibosheth? Who's like this, you know? Oh, man, what, what is going on? Okay. What has David just been through? Hell. He has just been through hell and back. Mutiny by his own son, his own blood, shamed by the fact that his son is committing this mutiny, attempted murder, attempted fratricide by his own son, and then his son, whom he loves, dies. This man is in deep grief. Do you know if, if I'm in a little bit of grief and I have this situation with Mephibosheth and Ziba, I'm like, done, just get out. Go. But what does David do? What does this king do? Loyal, love. He's just bleeding this loving kindness out in his raw and his ragged state of grief. He dispenses more loyal love. Look at verse 29. Watch this. And the king said to him, "Ah, Why speak any more of of your affair? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, I don't even care. Let him take it all since my Lord the King has come safely home. In other words, you're what I want. I don't give a rip about the ground and the the plants and all the houses. You, I want you. 
David just dispenses grace like crazy. He gives his loyal love to Mephibosheth and Ziba, whether they deserve it or not. David's promise of loyal love is not dependent upon Mephibosheth's efforts and faithfulness or his actions. Unconditional, faithful love based upon what? A pre-existing love, a pre-existing promise, not Mephibosheth's doings. What a story. This epic love story of Mephibosheth shows us the king who seeks out his enemies in order to lavish them with loving kindness. Now, how, how many acts did I say were in this play? Sorry, I misled you. Uh, it's five. It's five because there's the fifth act. The new covenant. I'm going to try to read these verses without crying. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness, the Hesed of God our Savior appeared when he took on flesh, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is the story of Mephibosheth written in systematic theology. Nothing Mephibosheth did brought him into the the loyal love of the king, but the king's love appeared in flesh, came to him and said, you're mine, sit at my table, eat with me, you are my son, though you used to be an enemy, you should have been dead, I give you life and life abundantly. The good news of King Jesus. Jesus is the true king who seeks out enemies to lavish them with loving kindness. And so I'm sure you can see how our Mephibosheth story points us to Jesus in so many ways. Let me just draw a few of them out. Because this, this story in 2 Samuel 9 is a beautiful portrait of the radical nature of the good news. Look, first, Mephibosheth, again, the son of a king, uh, the son of King David's friend Jonathan was crippled by a fall just as each one of us is crippled by a tragic fall because of our forebears' actions, because of Adam's fall. We are those who have been exiled from the presence of the king living out in the boonies. We are dead in our trespasses outside of Eden. Second, David, the anointed king, wanted and desired to show Mephibosheth kindness for Jonathan's sake because of a covenant. And because of the covenants that God had made born out of his love, He wants to show us kindness through the ministry of Jesus Christ. Third, this loving kindness was neither deserved nor earned by Mephibosheth. He could do little for himself in Lodabar. He wasn't going to bring a bunch of benefit to David there in Jerusalem. In fact, he, he was one thought to have deserved death, not life. Fourth, Mephibosheth was sought by the king, again showing the good news of unmerited favor. Not a single person has ever sought after God on their own power. We, we hear in scripture, it says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Jesus declares in John 15. Romans 3 also talks about this. 
dead men can do nothing, and so no one can come to Christ except through the Father, which he, he draws them to. It's incredible. Fifth, David ordered and empowered servants to go after Mephibosheth. We have some of our missionary friends here today. They are going out there proclaiming the good news to see Mephibosheth come in and sit at the table that God has prepared. Ziba is sent out with this news to bring those who do not sit in the presence of the king to sit in the presence of the king. We get to partner with God in those evangelistic efforts. The result of all this is that Mephibosheth worships the king. He is now a servant of the king. He pays homage to the king. And he gets to the point where he doesn't really care about the benefits. He just, he wants the blesser. He says, I don't care about the stuff. It's you. You're back. I mean, look at my, my toenails. They're long. My beard. Like, I just look gross. I've been in mourning. But now that you're back, I'm okay. Because it's you that I need. Seventh, he's provided for. He's given incredible riches and security, just as we have all the spiritual riches that are in Jesus Christ. All the blessings that are possible in this cosmos come to us through Jesus Christ. And then eight, because that's a good perfect number, he's brought to the king's table. He's made the king's son. He sits and he eats and he laughs and he hears stories in the king's presence. His shame is transformed into glory through the king's sacrificial love. There is shame in the name Mephibosheth. Remember it? It's a bit ambiguous. Shame scatterer. What, what does that mean? Is it shame, like I scatter shame, I'm bringing shame? Shame carrier, I'm sure he imagined that for most of his life because that's what he did, he carried shame. Or is it shame breaker, shame conqueror? See, the story is about the seeking king who takes away the shame of the shamed ones through his loving kindness. Mephibosheth was shattered by a terrible fall, lost his dad, lost grandpa. His family name was smeared in shame. He was an outcast, exile on the run, demoted to nowheresville, shame town, shattered feet, physical disability that was not treated kindly in his day and his age. But the king calls Mephibosheth by name. Remember, he calls him by name and he brings him to his table of love, his table of radical grace. And so Mephibosheth and his odd, strange, ambiguous name served to point us to Jesus, the royal son who came from the palace, who was an outcast, who was exiled, who was treated as an enemy as he took the consequences of humanity's fall upon himself, who went from the heavenly palace to nowheresville called Nazareth. King Jesus came to seek out his enemies and show them loyal love. He came to seek and to save. And how did he do it? By burying our shame in his body. Upon the cross, he came to carry the shame and to conquer the shame. Friends, I, I, I am Mephibosheth. And I came to the table in April of 2007 because he reached into my darkness 
I fled him. I fled him down the nights and down the days for 27 years. I fled him down the arches of those years. I, I fled him in the labyrinthine ways of my own mind with all my twisted ways of justifying myself and thinking I was good and deserved him. I'm a Mephibosheth. And I've been eating at the table since. And you're Mephibosheth. We are all Mephibosheth. But because of the good news of a good king's love and the new covenant, we are brought into the presence. And our shame is borne by another. And our shame is crushed and taken away. And so just one last appeal to you all. What we need to see this is the true king. King Jesus seeks out enemies to lavish them with loyal love. If you have a version, a variant of Jesus in your head, in your thoughts, that isn't a king who seeks out enemies to lavish them with loyal love, it just might not be the biblical Jesus. Because he seeks out his enemies to lavish them with loyal love. And so for those of us who are followers of Jesus, adopted sons and daughters of the king, here's a question for us. How might we seek? How might we seek out enemies to show them the loyal love of Jesus? I'm not going to give you an answer for that. I don't know. But I'm going to give that question, and I pray it's like a splinter in your heart this, this week when you're watching the news and you're, you're watching the hellscape of Gaza and, and Israel. And you're watching what's unfolding with, the, with, with the, the Jewish people and the Palestinian people. What, what might we do to seek out enemies, to, to shower them with loyal love? I don't know what it is. And there's only so much we can do about those global events. But there's other enemies in your life. How does knowing this paint how we even think about what's happening in the conflict in, in the East? We have a king, and we carry his spiritual DNA. We have a king who lavishes love on those who are his enemies. How might we bear the family DNA of loving kindness? And lastly, for those of us who are not followers of Jesus here today, do not be afraid to come into his presence Some of you have been so afraid to come into his presence because you feel like if you do, the king is gonna wipe you out. Or you feel like, I can't go back to him, not after what I saw last night, not after what I did, not after what I thought. Uh, There's just too much much shame and he's just gonna smack me down. He's gonna heap the shame. Like, that's not our king. He says, come here. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm gonna shower you with kindness. For those of us who are not followers of Jesus, don't be afraid to come into his presence. He is calling you by name to come and sit and eat at his table. So may you no longer flee from his love. May you no longer run from his kindness. He's calling you by name. So let's come and eat at the table of grace. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. Thank you for this incredible way you have written history that we might see the, the, the many perfections and the excellencies and the beauties of who Jesus is. So Father, as we come to this table today, may we come with an expanded imagination on what it means to be saved by grace through faith 
And may our lives be transformed by your word through your spirit. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.